There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello there. Hello. Can you hear me? You can? Good. Welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. Luke's English podcast. Here we go. This is episode number 778. And the podcast is back after what a two week absence. I think so. It's a something like that. There was no podcast last week. Busy times. Anyway, we're back. We're back. I say we. It's just me and you. And we're back. We're back together. I suppose that's what that means. Okay. Anyway, how are you? I hope you're well. Now, just before we start, a quick bit of news. So my full-time teaching schedule at school has ended now. For the last three weeks, I was teaching more or less full-time, just spending all my time at the school. Um, but that's ended now, and I have about one week to work on Luke's English podcast content and upload it before the August summer holiday begins. I'm not sure if I'll be able to work during August because, well, because, like, hello, it's holiday season. Uh, my daughter is off school. Um, we're going on holiday in France and in the UK. And I might not be able to bring my computer with me and so on. I just might not be able to get any work done, which is normal, isn't it? That's what happens. That's, that's, is that not the definition of a holiday? I think it is. So I might upload loads of content this week, or at least I'll, I'll upload as much as I can or as much as I, uh, you know, I'll try and upload a decent amount this week, which you can listen to during the summer. Now, I don't want to overload you, but also I don't want to underload you as well. Is that a word? Underload? Un to underload someone? I don't think it is. I'm not even going to check. It's not a word. Overload is a word, but you don't underload someone. Anyway, I don't want to give you too much content, but at the same time, I want to make sure you have enough, you know, so that you have things to listen to and stuff during the summer. Uh, in any case, it'll be like waiting for a bus again, probably. You, you might wait ages and then three episodes come at the same time something like that. And this includes premium content, by the way. So here's a quick update about LEP Premium. New episodes will be arriving very soon, including P35 Part 2, which is full of pronunciation practice. As you may know, Luke's English Podcast Premium is still in a transition from Libsyn to Acast. And during this time, I can't upload episodes because of a slight issue relating to transferring six and 12 month subscriptions. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm sure that you're like, ah, oh, tell us more about the issues relating to the transition of 12 and six month uh, subscriptions from Libsyn to Acast, Luke. Uh, well, I'm not going to explain all of the details, but basically it means that the sort of the premium stuff is on pause somewhat at this moment. Uh, but as soon as it's solved, then new premium content will arrived. Will arrived? Grammar! Where's What happened to the grammar? I don't know. It, it escaped for a second. As soon as I've solved the issues, solved the issues, not sold them. I'm not going to sell issues. Whoa. 
As soon as I've sold the issues, then new premium content will arrive. And I expect those issues to be fixed this week. That's what I'm hoping for. Acast are being very nice and they are basically saving the day here. That's the plan. I'm just waiting for them to tell me all the details and then bang, we can start. So um, anyway, if you have a six or 12 month subscription to LEP Premium on Libsyn, the old system, then I will be contacting you soon with a solution to the situation. So just hold on. And if you don't understand what's happening or what I'm talking about, then just check my website for updates in the premium part of the menu. But mainly the message is just hold on. Premium stuff is coming. And if you're wondering about your subscription, I will be in touch with you very soon. If you're new to Luke's English Podcast Premium, then you can just go ahead and sign up if you want through Acast. It's uh, teacherluke.co.uk slash premium or click the link in the description. And if you do that, you will be supporting this whole project And in return, you will get access to all the Luke's English Podcast Premium episodes. And that's well over 100 vocabulary, pronunciation and grammar practice lessons, PDFs, videos, and also you get ad-free episodes of Luke's English Podcast. And if you're wondering how it all works, have a look at my website where you will find the information you need, including how to access the PDFs and how to add LEP Premium episodes to your podcasting app of choice. Just have a look at my website, teacherluke.co.uk, for the information that you need. Okay, all right, good. That's that's the, the rambling pre-jingle introduction bit. Let's now have the jingle, and I will tell you all about this new episode, episode 778. Okay, here's the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone, again. In this episode, my dad is back on the podcast. Yeah, double double dad. Two Rick Thompson episodes in a row. Yep, two Rick Thompson episodes in a row. Uh, but it's not the Rick Thompson report. So no politics this time. Instead, we're doing an episode that we've been hoping to do since Christmas last year. In this one, Dad is going to tell us about an old story from the Arthurian legends. The Arthurian legends. That's a set of stories about the mythical King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. British legends and folklore, myths and legends. The story we're talking about is in the form of a poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. People seem to disagree about how to pronounce the name. I've heard Gawain, Gawain, Gawain. I say Gawain. So the poem is called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This long poem was probably first written down in the 14th century by an unknown poet, but the story is probably much older than that and part of a long oral storytelling tradition. What Dad is going to do is describe the significance of this story, give us a summary of the plot, and also he'll make some comments about the history of the English language and the rhythmic and rhyming style used in the original 14th century version of this poem, which was written in what we now call Middle English. 
My dad studied English literature at university in the 1960s at Oxford. And this was one of the texts that he studied, so he knows it quite well. Recently, the old 14th century version of this poem was updated by a modern poet called Simon Armitage. Simon Armitage is, in fact, the current poet laureate of the UK. And if you're wondering what that is, just keep listening. Armitage has managed to write a modern version of this poem using modern English vocabulary, but it retains many of the linguistic and poetic devices of the original, including certain forms of rhyme and rhythm that made the poem so effective. So it's a modernised version with modern vocabulary, but many of the poetic devices, the metre of the poem and so on, right, the sort of the rhyme and rhythm of it, are replicated from the original. So it's a, it's a faithful reproduction. And those rhythmic devices and rhyming devices are actually a really important part of what makes the poem so special. So Simon Armitage has done a great job in allowing us to enjoy this poem and understand it as well. So my dad got that Simon Armitage version of this story for Christmas. And that's what inspired us to do this episode. It should be interesting for you to hear the story, to hear my dad's comments about it, and learn how this fits into the history of the English language. In the second half of this episode, I will read you a summarised version of the full story, okay, just to make sure you hear an uninterrupted version. Plus, I will read out a few verses of the Simon Armitage version of the poem, again, to give you a good chance to hear some of the rhyme and rhythm of that. You'll hear my dad read out some of the lines, but I'm, I'm going to give you a longer reading to give you a, a, a full sense of what the poem is like. OK, so if you are sitting comfortably, let's begin. And if you're not sitting, if you're standing that's okay. Or maybe you're lying down. Anyway, whatever position your body is in at this current moment, let's now begin. Hi, Dad. Hello, Luke. Hello, everybody. Very nice to have you on the podcast again. Yes, nice to talk to you. How are things over there? Not bad. It's, it's due to be extremely hot. It's already kind of started. We've got a heat wave coming. Ah, yes. The weather situation. We always have to do that. Always. Yes, I've been seeing that the continent of Europe um, is gripped in a heat wave. Yeah. We're getting it today. It's um, hottest day of the year. This is mid-June. Hottest day of the year today. And uh, London might hit 33 degrees, which is pretty hot. For London. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. Well, it's going to it's going to break forty degrees uh, tomorrow. They say. Wow. Well, that's the, not that's uncomfortable. The feels like temperature will be forty degrees, which, as far as I'm concerned, means it will be forty degrees. <laughs> yes, if that's what it feels like. It's like yeah. You yeah. know, I don't, I'm not checking for anything else other than how it's going to feel. So just tell me the feels like temperature. It's good that they do that. The feels like temperature. It's yes. quite useful. So anyway, yeah. Okay, little bit of weather. But um, so here you are. And uh, I was just thinking that this is going to be kind of like an episode of Rick's Book Club in a way, because the starting point for our conversation will be the fact that you got a book. All right, then it's not quite the same as um, your mother's book club. Yeah, because she she really is a great reader and she, she can recommend some super books, particularly contemporary books. Uh, I'm not quite as good as that, but it's certainly not going to be a, 
a Rick Thompson report. We're going to avoid all mention of politics. Yeah. <laughs> Even though people are probably clamouring for, for a bit of that stuff. <laughs> well, if, if you twist my arm at the end, I might mention something. But, but uh, this is not going to be about that. No. So let's just remove those, those ideas from our minds. To tell the kind of story, just to kind of put the listeners in the picture. So fairly recently, when was it? Maybe Christmas time when I was there, uh, when the family was together um, at your place. And you were talking about a book that you'd got. And it just sounded fascinating. And I'd, I already knew about the, the subject of the book a bit, but I'd always wanted to know more. And then you started talking to me about it and we both agreed it would make quite a good episode of the podcast. Yes, well, it's obviously got a lot to do with, um, with the English language. And I know a lot of your listeners are quite interested in, in you know, the background and the development of the English language. And this is a poem that I... I studied way back when, when I was at university. So we're talking about what? What? First of all, what's the, what's the book that you got? And uh, then what is the book about? OK, here we go then. The book is called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Sir Gawain. So Gawain, Sir is, a, Gawain. is a name. He is the young member of the Knights of the Round Table uh, in Arthurian legend. Uh, and young Gawain um, is a bit of a hero. So um, it's useful for Christmas time because it's set at the beginning in, at Christmas time. Mm. Uh, now, I ought to say that this poem was written down in the 14th century, just towards the end of the 14th century. Actually, that's not true. It's thought to be, it was actually written, if you like, at that time. But there's only one remaining manuscript of it, and that was written in Shakespeare's time, so uh, 100 years later. So this is the poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The book That's that you've right. got is about this poem. I've got two books. I've got, okay. the, um, I've got the original version book, which is written in this antiquated language, and I've got a relatively new book, which is by a contemporary poet called Simon Armitage, and he has translated it. He is the poet laureate. You like that? I, li- I like the, that. The, what, what is the poet laureate? The, the, the monarch traditionally has a poet. Okay, I mean the, the poet doesn't sit beside the queen and read out poetry, but uh, it's a title. So um, someone uh, is the poet laureate, and the and the reason they are is that they're spe- expected to write some poems for famous historical moments in in time. So if the uh, the poet laureate's probably written one for the Queen's seventieth anniversary on the throne, though if he has, I haven't noticed it. So Simon Armitage is the poet laureate, the official poet of Brit- of britain <laughs> britain's right. number one poet chosen by the queen <laughs> yeah okay it's a traditional title and it's been around for a very long time uh, he, simon armitage is a, a really interesting guy he's um uh, from northern england and he writes quite a lot of um stuff which is kind of about the north and uh, he likes natural history. He's a very interesting poet. He has translated, done a new translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and he's done it in the style of the original poem, which is in a particularly complicated form or format. Yeah. And it comes over really well. I mean, it's... um, you know, later on I might read you a little bit, but but it's, uh, it's done in exactly the same style. 
So Gawain and the Green Knight was um, written by a, a, a poet who was regarded as one of the finest writers uh, of his time. We know when it was written and we, we know pretty well where it was written. Uh, we ought to just remind ourselves that the English language has changed a great deal, particularly you know, since the Roman invasion. Uh, in 54 BC. Before that, uh, there were a lot of Celtic languages, some of which remain in certain forms in Ireland, Scotland and Wales. But um, our islands have been invaded over and over and over again. And they've also been invaded, not militarily, but by traders. And they have brought with them their languages. Uh, So our language has changed a really great deal over last 2,000 years, but obviously before then. And um, scholars kind of conveniently divide it into three uh, main sections. So Old English, otherwise known as Anglo-Saxon, is the English that was spoken after the Romans had left and England became dominated in the south by the Anglo-Saxons who came in from mainland Germany and and Netherlands. And the north of England was dominated by the Vikings who took over, the Danes took over the northeast of England. And they, um, these languages they brought with them meant that uh, there were many, many different words in Old English. Then around, after the Norman invasion, 1066, 1066, yes, famous date, yeah. the, the scholars say, well, you enter a period which, which is called Middle English. And Middle English is very much influenced by French and Latin. And the Old English and the Middle English kind of mix up together. And there's this thing called, well, they call it Middle English. Mm. And this is what Sir Gawain in the Green Knight is written in. It's yeah. written in late Middle English. And it's a very difficult for us to understand because there's actually quite a lot of different words and there's different pronunciations. There are even some different letters. Mm. Uh, I mean, um, TH, the, it has its own letter called a thorn uh, and it looks a bit like a Y. And even to this day, you have pubs which say, uh, ye oldie black bull. And everyone calls it ye oldie black bull. But actually, the ye is actually the, because it's a, it, it's a thorn written right. like a Y. Wow. Uh, but, but that's Middle English. And then from about 1400, people tend to say we're moving into modern English. Uh, so up to 1100 Old English... 1100 to 1400, Middle English, 1400 to now, the development of modern English. So this is a Middle English poem, and it's thought to be the greatest Middle English narrative poem. Um, and we, the, the, the author ought to be famous, but we don't know what his name was. So he's just known as the Gawain poet, or sometimes the Pearl poet, because the manuscript has three other poems and they're clearly written by him because mm. uh, they're in the same style. Written in North Staffordshire, not very far away from where I live in the Midlands, because you can tell that from his dialect words and the way he uses rhymes. So they can pinpoint it pretty much in North Staffordshire, just to the northwest of Birmingham. And that's uh, the the anonymous poet. Maybe we should give him a name. Then he'd become more famous. Dave. Maybe we should call him... Yeah, call him Dave. Dave wrote this <laughs> anyway <laughs> no dave is not appropriate maybe we should yeah well the gawain poet uh, dave, yes, he dave is, gawain. He's, the, he's the gawain poet dave gawain uh so it's um it's brilliantly written uh it's quite long 
It's got 101 verses, more than 2,500 lines. It's, it's a long narrative poem. And it nearly didn't survive. It was, it was collected by a man called Robert Cotton, who, who did, he, his interest was collecting old literature a long time back. I mean, we are talking about, again, about Shakespeare's time. I think he was born about 1570. And Robert Cotton was collecting old manuscripts and he collected the, these from uh, from somewhere uh, the Gawain poem and the other po- poems by the uh, the Gawain poet and they were written on vellum vellum is calf skin right. calf skin animal skin and uh, it's the, the pages are quite small but it's um it's quite quite a thick document and um he he added this to his collection in his library in a place called Ashburnham House. Unfortunate name, really, because he had a fire. <laughs> when Ash Ashburnham House burned. <laughs> uh, this oh was God. in 1731, and um, they they scrambled to the library to try and collect all these valuable manuscripts, and they did save Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. They also saved. Beowulf. Oh, great. The old English manuscript, which was singed at the edges, but they managed to get it out without it being burned. There were other manuscripts destroyed, and, and you know, we don't know what they were. Wow, Beowulf is a fantastic story. So, uh, so, so Gawain and the Green Knight had a narrow escape. This is the only copy. Uh, it's in the uh, British Museum, I think, and it's called Cotton. That's the name of the man who collected them. Manuscript Nero A.X., I don't know why. It's a cataloging code, but uh, that's Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Okay, so that's the original one. And you do, you, as you said earlier, you do actually have a copy of the original version. Yes, the, the one I studied at university, yeah. I mean, it's covered in my pencil writing, trying to work out what these words mean. Uh, you know, all scribbled down the edges. Yeah, because you, stu- you studied English literature at, at university. That's right, yes. So we had to study some Old English. We had to study some Middle English. The main author that everybody knows from Middle English time is Geoffrey Chaucer. And Chaucer died in 1400, so he's ended the Middle English period. And, of course, um, his Canterbury Tales are famous. He also wrote other things. Uh, Canterbury Tales are famous partly because they're so amusing and enjoyable, uh, but they're also a historical document about society at the time. And he was a... a, Chaucer was a a satirist, which is, um, you know, a great tradition in in British English writing. And to this day, you know, our sense of humour and our love of satire is still in, in the population. Chaucer uh, you know, wrote uh, very wittily and uh, he describes all the pilgrims going to Canterbury and they are a, a portrait of society and he is actually parodying uh, all the people who, from the church. He obviously thought the church was corrupt who um, uh, don't behave as they should. So it's a very interesting book. But this, this is not around the same time as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, mm. but they're very different. You know, Chaucer was south... Southeast England, uh, sophisticated, you know, moved in courtly circles. This guy is um, is is up in the Midlands using a different dialect, mm. and uh, it's got a different feel to it. It's bleaker. He describes things in great detail. He describes country life. He describes hunting. He describes the weather. 
which is bleak. bleak. So it's um, bleak. bleak. It's a kind of, it's a menacing. It's winter time. It's cold. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it's got much more atmosphere, and it's actually a bit of a horror story. Oh, wonderful! We like that. So hold on, bleak listeners. Uh, um, this is I've done this word on before. So if something is bleak, it means it's cold, empty unattractive, not a lot of life, unlike uh, Chaucer's version of the world, which would have been, as you say, down in the south where there was a lot more civilization. Um, uh, the um, Sir Gawain poet lived yeah, further north where things were a bit colder and a bit more... Uh, a bit more yeah, it was less urban. I mean, he was yeah. basically out in the countryside. Okay. Mm-hmm. So do you want to know the story? Yes, please. So, yeah, <laughs> definitely... Well, I'll try to do it very quickly. Uh, it it's, um, it's actually has a lot of references to old, old stories, some of them from the Romance tradition, which is very much French, and some of them from older British tradition, Irish even, and they get, they get combined in this story. So there is a test of uh, Gawain's bravery, there is a bit of spooky horror. There is a, a, a trek, a quest out into the unknown. And, of course, a test of his bravery, but also a test of his honour, his courtly behaviour. And this was what the Knights of the Round Table were supposed to be. They were supposed to be brave, but they were also supposed to be uh, chaste. Uh, that means um, they honoured honored ladies and, uh, you know, weren't tempted to sins of the flesh. So uh, all these things are combined. They were good people. They, they were honest and um, fair and, and those sorts of things. Honourable and uh, deeply honourable. Mm. So the story is, it's set in, in at Christmas time, the court of King Arthur with all his knights and his, his wife, Guinevere is there and they are feasting and uh, the description of all the food that was brought in is very lavish. Now you must remember that this is part of the oral tradition of poetry before these things were written down and before many people could read. So the, the travelling poets were very clever guys and, and they, they were uh, brought in especially at feasting times to entertain everybody with a story. And this is in that tradition. And uh, so they they have this wonderful feast and then something strange happens. And uh, a huge knight, dressed all in green, clatters his way into the, into the hall and he's carrying a great big axe and he himself is green and the horse is green. And um, he issues a challenge and he's scoffing and uh, he says to Arthur, you know, who will challenge me? Uh, and he says they're all, you know, cowards and everything. Arthur springs up and basically says, I'll challenge you, what do you want? But Gawain leaps up and says, no, I will take him on. And he issues this challenge. Uh, I will allow you one stroke of your sword uh, on me and I will not oppose it if... You will come to me in a year and a day's time and receive a blow from me in return. From his axe. From his axe. So Wait, wait, back back up again. Just run that <laughs> run that by me again. 
So, um, which may be what I would say if I was in that situation. Hold on a minute, Mr. Green Knight. <laughs> Just run that by me again. What's the deal again here? So I get to hit you with my sword and you're not going to oppose it. You're not going to try and defend yourself. So I get a free shot on you. Yep. But only if a year and, year and a day later... Uh, I come to visit you. Yeah, yeah. Gawain's got to go and find him, and then he must submit himself to a stroke of the axe. So the Green Knight gets to have a go at him. So, but surely, if um, Sir Gawain, with his free shot of the sword, if he gets to chop the guy's head off or kill him, uh, the Green Knight, then he won't need to worry about a year and a day, uh, um, right? That's what I'd be thinking. So you would have thought so, wouldn't you? Anyway, the Green Knight stands there and bows his head and and pulls his hair back to expose his neck and basically says, go on, hit me. Um, Weird. This is the Middle English. Now, I'm not very good at reading Middle English. It's difficult. But the Green Knight upon ground gravely him dresses a little loot with the head, the lira he decovera, his longer locks he laid over his crown, let the naked neck to the note shoe. In readiness, that means. And uh, if you listen to Simon Armitage's version, let me see, it's uh, lines 415. In the standing position, he prepared to be struck, bent forward, revealing a flash of green flesh. As he heaped his hair to the crown of his head, the nape of his neck, now naked and ready. And wow. Gawain grips the axe and heaves it heavenwards, plants his left foot firmly on the floor in front, then swings it swiftly towards the bare skin. The cleanness of the strike cleaved the spinal cord and parted the fat of the flesh so far that the bright steel blade took a bite from the floor. The handsome head tumbled onto the earth and the king's men kicked it as it clatters past. Wow. So, so actually, Gawain has an axe... And the green and he's, knight. And he's, no, no, Gawain's got his sword and he's cut, cut. But oh, 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 it was his axe. You're yeah. right. He had an so axe. He, so actually Gawain uses an axe to, to, to do this. Gawain uh, grips the axe. Yes, that's yeah. right. It okay. was an axe. Just to be clear, just in case anyone was getting a bit confused. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, okay. So the green knight, okay. So the green knight comes into the hall. They're all having a big feast. King Arthur's there. He's the king. The other knights are around. King Arthur's wife, Guinevere, is there. The green knight comes in and they all think, who's this? Who's this wit? And, and he comes in on a horse. The knight is green from head to toe. The horse is green as well. And everyone's like, what's this? And the green knight says, ha-ha, I've got a challenge for you. It's a challenge. Um, if uh, I challenge one of you to, to, to fight me. And Arthur's like, I'll do it. I'm King Arthur. And then uh, Sir Gawain steps up and goes, no, 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 it's all right. I've got this. So Gawain comes in and the green knight describes the terms of the fight and he says I'll let you have a free shot on me but uh, only if a year and a day later you have to come and find me and I get the chance to have a free shot on you and Gawain who's kind of up for a quest and a and an adventure and a challenge goes okay and so the green knight kneels down moves his hair out of the way exposing his neck Gawain uses an axe and chops the guy's head off the axe goes through so quickly and cleanly that it hits the floor and uh, the head 
topples off and the knights who are sitting around on at their tables actually kick the head around a bit. It rolls about under their feet. Okay. So they are quite descriptive, isn't it? Uh, and uh, the, oh, the poem is very descriptive. And, of course, what happens is the green knight uh, doesn't fall over. He just picks up the head by its hair. This is the, the, head, heads, the headless green knight. The headless green knight picks up his head and the head then speaks to them about do not forget your promise and he jumps into the saddle still holding his head and swirls away and rides out through the door and the 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 poem describes how there were sparks of fire flashing from the horse's hooves on the stone wow so there we go wow impressive now what's it all about what does this mean what's it all about well of course the year goes by and then Gawain's starting to get a bit nervous, but he's got to keep his promise. It's honour, honour. He's got to keep his promise. So off he rides into the cold and then he goes on this journey. He doesn't really know where he's going, but uh, he feels as though he's being drawn northwards. He keeps being reminded that he's probably going to have his head cut off by the landscape. You know, the, the poet describes the clouds on the hilltops like... Uh, Every hill had a hat. And uh, he goes past Holy Well. Holy Well is where uh, someone was martyred and their head was thrown down the well. Uh, There are lots of little reminders and everything else. And he Mm. finishes up uh, at a castle where he's taken in for the night. Uh, Oh, it's Gawain from Knights of the Round Table. Come on in. And and the the owner of the castle is called Bertilac. Bertilac du Haut Désert. Bertie Lacdose is here. And he's a strong, strongly built man. And they they feast Gawain and he has a very beautiful wife. And Bertilac and the wife, they entertain Gawain. Right. They welcome him in. They do. Oh, you're one of the knights of the round table. Indeed. He's the famous Gawain. Come and, in, um, come in, we'll welcome you. And they have a feast. But Bertilac's wife is gorgeous, is she? Oh, she is. Oh yeah. Mm. Anyway, uh, so Bertilac says, um, right, I'm going off hunting in the morning. My wife will entertain you. And off he goes with all his men into the forest to go hunting. This happens three three mornings in a row. And Bertilac says in a jovial fashion to Gawain, tell you what, everything I catch, I'll give to you if you give me back anything you gain while I'm out. Whoa, 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 whoa. So another kind of deal. Another game. Another game, yes. another deal. So Bertanak's gone hunting. He's left Gawain at the castle to be entertained by his wife. And Bertanak says, here, I've got a little game for you. Anything I catch when I'm hunting, I'll give to you. And anything that you gain, meaning anything you you re- obtain you win. or win or get while I'm away, you have to give to me. This happens three times in a row. Bertilac goes hunting in the morning. I think the first time it's hunting the deer. Next time it's hunting the fox. And the next time it's hunting the boar. I may have got that in the wrong order. Yeah. But there are relationships between the temptations that are going on back at the castle because uh, the beautiful wife comes to Gawain's bedroom and sits on his bed and says how a sweet, lovely guy he is and everything else. But, of course, he uh, he is a very, very honourable Night and wouldn't dream of taking advantage of this uh, beautiful woman. And she does tempt him. 
He is offered a ring by her at one point, which he refuses. No, I, I shouldn't, you know. She manages to gain two kisses from him on the second night and three kisses, sorry, in morning, and the three kisses on the third morning. These are innocent kisses, I think. But he does accept, in the end, a green and gold girdle, uh, which is like uh, a sash. What's that? Uh, which she says, well, it's something wrapped around your waist. Okay. And uh, he, he's told by her that it will protect him from anything bad that might be happening to him. So he gives in and he takes the sash. Oh, it's like a magic sash. It could be a magic sash. Magic girdle. She says, "Whatever, this will protect It'll you. It'll protect you. Kind of like a thing, listeners, that you wrap, like a piece of fabric that you would wrap around your stomach and hips. Yes. Okay, that's a girdle. Anyway, Gawain has has given in to a little little extent. And anyway, he's sent on his way by Bertilac, who says, oh, the Green Chapel, you're looking for the Green Chapel. It's not far away. So he sent him on his way, and sure enough, Gawain arrives at this little dell, which is called the Green Chapel. Which is where he expects to find the Green Knight. He knows he's in the right spot because he can hear an axe being sharpened. <laughs> uh, so... Then there's the confrontation, then he bows his head. The Green Knight makes as if he's going to chop his head off, but stops at the last minute, but Gawain flinches. The Green Knight uh, uh, mocks him for being frightened. So Gawain says, no, go ahead, I won't flinch this time. And flinch. he doesn't. Flinch. That means, mean, means jerk his head away. Yeah. Okay? All kids do this. They pretend to sort of hit you or poke you. And if you flinch, they go, ah, yes. made you flinch. That's right. Right. It's just, you know, trying to dart out of the way. He says, I won't flinch next time. And sure enough, he doesn't. And the, uh, the, the Green Knight swings the axe, but it just nicks the side of Gawain's neck. Just a little nick, little slight cut. A little tiny cut. Just, it doesn't... A little, just a little, he nearly misses it altogether. Just, just nicks it. Yeah. And Gawain feels the blood and he jumps up and says, you've had your stroke. Right, how about a proper fight? And then the Green Knight reveals himself to be Bertilac, the owner of the castle. What? Yes. What? He, and what? Been a, there was a relationship between his temptations in the castle and what would happen to him in the Green Chapel. And he came through it pretty well. But the nick was because he did accept the girdle from the wife. So Bertinite gives Gawain the things that he's got from his hunting expeditions, right? Or he at least feeds him with these things. But Gawain hasn't given him the girdle. Gawain keeps the girdle secret. That's right. He kind of goes, I I really don't want to give away this girdle because this is going to help. Uh, when I fight that Green Knight, that's so right. He keeps so he's the broken this little promise. He broke his promise, and which is not something that an honourable knight of the Round Table must do. So he 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 made a mistake there. He broke the promise, and he kept the girdle secret, and he carried on. And then, so yeah, when he finally meets the Green Knight, and the Green Knight goes to cut his head off, and doesn't, and just nicks his neck slightly, just cuts it a little bit. Gawain thinks, ah, it's the magic girdle that protected me. But then the Green Knight goes, ha-ha, it's me, Bertilac. You, you get the idea. So, so the, the poem concludes, uh, Gawain goes back, uh, is greeted warmly at the, the um, uh, knights, by the Knights of the Round Table and uh, uh, everyone lives happily ever after. But the point is that there are a number of different 
traditions all packed together into this poem, which is what makes it quite interesting. Uh, that the you know the temptation scene, the uh, the journey, uh, the the challenges. There's there's two of them. Promises. Will the promises be broken? And it's basically all about the honour. Uh, of being a knight, bravery combined with courtly honour. One of the things I said in, this is going to sound like a crazy tangent, but it's not. One of the things I said in my conversation with James recently was that it's very difficult to go, uh, to navigate the moral maze of your life to just make the right decisions. For example, should I... Um, do x y and z you know what's the right moral choice and i suppose this is kind of the same thing that it's about the challenge of trying to do the right thing and trying to maintain some level of of, of morality in your life it, certainly, it? it certainly is a morality tale uh, as well as being an adventure and um you know there, there are there are various other little things i haven't mentioned i mean one one of them is that there is a, an old woman living in bertilax castle and it turns out that uh, that's Morgan Le Fay. Morgan Le Fay is in the Arthurian legend as the um, a sort of witch, uh, but not necessarily a bad witch. Uh, sorry, a magic woman, an enchantress. And the enchantress is the one who has produced the magic girdle, apparently. Ah. The the woman of the house, the lady of the house, says. You know, I happen to know it's given to me by uh, this ancient enchantress, enchantress, which makes it even more persuasive for Gawain to to keep it because he thinks it may well have magic properties if it's come from Morgan Le Fay. So, I mean, it's a story which obviously uh, has has Christian overtones, but they are by no means clear that mm. uh, I think the story goes back to a long time, probably mm. to pre-Christian times, because the the poet, the other poems he wrote, um, which are in the manuscript, one is called Pearl, the Pearl, one is called Patience, and one is called Purity. They are very much morality tales, so that's Sir Gawain. I didn't, haven't told you a little bit about the form of it. These, these stanzas are incredibly complicated. Well, before you get onto that, there's just one thing. I know that there are some people jumping up and down going, but how did he chop his head off and then he didn't have his head chopped off? You know, like he chopped, he chopped the Green Knight's head off and then when he found the Green Knight again, his head was back on? That was not explained, Luke. Okay, it's just magic <laughs> stuff. It's magic stuff. Yeah. Okay. The Green Knight. Who is the Green Knight? People have written books and books about who is the Green Knight. What does it represent? Again, it's a combination of things. The the there is um, a Green Man in British folklore who uh, represents nature, the wild world, and even to this day, there are villages around England where they have an annual fair which features a green man all dressed up in in uh, green stuff and there are pubs called the green man 
and um, it, it's obviously the, the turn of the year, and I think we're talking about uh, ancient ideas that around Christmas time, around the turn of the year, the world has to start regenerating again, and and, yeah. and everything's going to start growing again, and it had better do, otherwise we're in trouble. And the, the green man represents the renewal of nature and fertility, actually. So is that the green knight? It, it's, it's not entirely clear. There are other green knights in in folklore who are monsters and they are not a good thing so he's a kind of a mixture between the evil monster that lives out in the countryside and the regenerating force of nature Hmm. there's a festival as a music festival called the green man festival i've been there several times it happens in august it's in uh herefordshire Yeah, it's it's great. It's a really good festival, right? Yeah, fascinating story. Really it, it, good. Well, it, uh, that's Mysterious. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which you got interested in, and uh, the new translation is really pretty good. The thing is that the poet Simon Armitage has has tried to make it as like the original as he can in modern English, so that we can yeah. understand it. And these these verses are, are brilliant. One of the things that your English students will probably know is that is that Old English poetry had uh, alliteration at its core. Which is what? It's uh, lines with the same sound at the beginning of the words, or if you like, front rhymes as opposed to mm. end rhymes. Alliteration. And that's what Beowulf is like. This, this is Old English. And so each line has three, sometimes four, Uh, similar sounds at the beginning of the words. And this is what you've got in Sir Gawain. So it's, it's, if you like, written written around uh, 1380, I would think it's it's harking back. It's written in a deliberately kind of oldish, you know, oral tradition style, the way the poet sitting by the fire in the feasting hall would, would do it. It's a bit mm. like modern rap, you know. I reckon these travelling poets were very skilled, like rappers. Yeah. But this is there's more to it than this. That, that, that after these lines, which I think are are they five beats to the bar? Where should thy will be? Quoth one, where is the place? One, two, three, four, five. But then at the end, each stanza uh, has a little quirky thing called a bob and wheel. There's a bob and wheel. The bob is two syllables, normally two one-syllable words, da-da, which stops the rhythm, stops in its tracks, and then it has four lines which have uh, rhymes on lines two and four at the end, at the end. So it's uh, it it closes off each stanza. It's a a rounding-off idea. How can I do that? A a bob and wheel. this will not be this will not be right, listeners. What I'm about to do, but it will just kind of give you an idea of what we're doing. So, if the verses mostly go, what you know, da 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 da, and then da 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 something like that. Yes, I can do this in Simon Armitage when when the Green Knights had his head chopped off. Let me see. Let me see. Uh, strides to his steed, snatches the bridle, steps into the stirrup and swings into the saddle. Steps into the stirrup and swings into the saddle. I suppose that's five beats. Still gripping his head with a handful of hair. It might be four. 
Then he settles himself in his seat with the ease of a man unmarked, never mind being minus his head. That's the bob, two syllables. Yes. Never mind being minus his head. And then you have the wheel, these four lines. And when he wheeled about, his bloody neck still bled. His point was proved. The court was deadened now with dread. Yeah. See, so the format is really pretty complicated. And every one of the 101 verses does this, has the bob and wheel at the end. Incredible. It is incredible. And, and um, I mean, it's, it's also uh, great when read out loud. I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah. It works uh, in in the, in that way. So otherwise it would be a bit samey, wouldn't it? It would just go da di da di da di da di da di da di da and go on and people might start nodding off. But this this technique, you know, rounds it off with a bit of a flourish at the end of each stanza with a bit of a punch. Hello, listeners. I hope you're enjoying this episode with my dad. Now, you might be thinking at this point as we talk about the rhyming and rhythmic style of this poem. You might be thinking, I wish I could hear more verses of the poem being read out. Well, keep listening because after the conversation with my dad, I will read out about three verses, I think, from the very beginning of the poem to give you an idea of what this rhyming really sounds like and what this rhythm really sounds like with the, you know, the alliteration and then the bob and wheel, this structure, this poetic structure that my dad uh, mentioned and described there. I'm also going to give you a summarised version of the whole story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight as well, so you get a sense of what the whole story really is. Okay, nice one. This is the spoken English tradition. Yes. And spoken English is, is all about sentence stress and about pausing in certain places and the effect that that has. I always talk about this when I'm, you know, teaching my students about presentation skills and things like that, that the way you pause and the way you use syllables is so important in English. And so, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I'd love to hear, like, a bit more, Dad. Could, could, do you reckon you could read uh, a few verses? You mean from, from the modern English version... It's going to have to be the modern English because version. Otherwise because otherwise, it no will know what the heck it's about. Yeah, the old English, the middle English version is, is just too uh, difficult to understand. So, yeah, if you could read us maybe a few verses. Oh, that's a bit much. Because I think that to get the overall effect, we need to hear that rhythm being repeated a few times. I've got a bit here, which is when he arrives at the, the Green Chapel... And he's found a, 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 a hill, a little green hill with a, with a glade below it. It's called a knoll. A knoll, uh, that's yeah. an old word for a little, little grassy hill. Yeah. And uh, he stalls and halts, holds the horse still. Can you see that that's got four, huh, four H's? He yeah. stalls and halts, holds the horse still. Okay, so each line is is got either three or four alliterations in it, normally four, and that's yeah. what Simon Armitage had to try and do uh, by using modern words. So it was obviously quite quite a a task. He stalls, um, so he's pulling up, and halts, holds the horse still, glances side to side to glimpse the green chapel, but sees no such thing, which he thinks is strange except at mid-distance, what might be a mound, 
a sort of bald knoll on the bank of a brook, where fell water surged with frenzied force, bursting with bubbles as if it had boiled. He heals the horse, heads for that mound, grounds himself gracefully and tethers Gringolet, that's the name of his horse, looping the reins to the limb of a lime, then he strides forward and circles the feature. Baffled as to what this bizarre hill could be, it had a hole at one end and at either side, and its walls, matted with weeds and moss, that's two pairs, uh, uh, walls and weeds, and matted Mm. with moss, enclosed a cavity like a kind of old cave or crevice in the crag. It was all too unclear to declare. Green church chanters the night, more like the devil's lair where at the nub of night he makes his morning prayer. So that was the bob and wheel. Declare, green church chanters the night, more like the devil's lair, where at the nub of night he makes his morning prayer. Green church is the the two syllables, and then the... Declare is actually the bob. Oh. Oh, crevice in the crag, it was all too unclear to declare. Green church chanters the night, more like the devil's lair, where at the nub of night he makes his morning prayer. Uh, complicated and, stuff uh, listeners I, yeah. I expect that the my audience didn't understand all of the words and maybe but it was just the the idea of playing you that everyone was just to give you a sample of the rhythm and the sound of it okay yeah. there's a little bit more here he he's he's um uh what he heard this shout what now what is old english and it starts uh, most english old english poems the first word is what uh, and it basically means now listen hey there you know it's funny you mentioned rap because a lot of rappers start their 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 rhymes with what 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 yes before indeed, they indeed. before they start isn't it interesting anyway then he heard on the hillside from behind a hard rock and beyond the brook a blood chilling noise what it cannon through the cliffs as if they may crack like the scream of a scythe being ground on a stone what it whined and wailed like a water wheel what it rasped and rang roar on the ear my god cried gawain that grinding is a greeting my arrival is honored with the honing of an axe up there then let the lord decide a well won't help me here i might well lose my life but freak sounds hold no fear. So there you go. Wonderful stuff. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, a dramatic story uh, which combines several other stories, challenges, temptations, bravery, monsters, uh, and it's brilliantly written, brilliantly descriptive. And there are, there are like, you know, many different interpretations of the story. We've got Sir Gawain as a medieval romance, Christian interpretations of it, feminist interpretations, post-colonial interpretations, and, you know, the idea of the hero's journey. Uh, who is it who wrote that book? Campbell? Hero's journey. Um, hold on. Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. Uh, do you know about this? No. Oh, it's great. So, Joseph... All right, hold on. Let me try and give you a quick summary. So, this is what Wikipedia says about it. The Hero with a Thousand Faces is a work 
published first in 1949, of Comparative Mythology by Joseph Campbell, in which the author discusses his theory of the mythological structure of the journey of the archetypal hero found in world myths. And since the publication of this book, Campbell's theory of the hero's journey has been consciously applied to a wide variety of modern writers and artists. Filmmaker George Lucas acknowledged Campbell's theory in mythology and its influence on the Star Wars films. Um, So Joseph Campbell just came up with this theory that basically a lot of these stories all have the same central themes in them. And that includes Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, The Legend of Zelda, and many, many others. Um, and probably Sir Gawain and the Green yeah, Knight. Oh, absolutely, Maybe definitely. I mean, the, you know, we're talking about a disuse, we're talking about um, famous journeys by norm- normally noble people who are wronged in some way. Um, yeah. That's certainly Harry Potter. And uh, it, the the journey isn't quite you know the road movie uh, the, you know the road movie uh, is slightly different um, it's often people escaping something but uh, the traditions of the journey into the unknown uh, go back a long way and are lots of connections between them yeah wow well there you Great. go Luke there you go bit of Middle English really, really good really really good listeners if you want to if you want to you know get involved and have a go at reading it Sir Gawain and the Green Knight by Simon Armitage that's probably the best one don't try the I mean you could have a look at the surviving uh, version of it the original one but it'll be really really difficult to understand the, the one I've got which is an old copy of course because I had it at university is uh, edited by J.R.R. Tolkien J.R.R. Tolkien and E.V. Yeah. Gordon and um of course, Tolkien was a real expert in Old English, and it has lots of notes. Uh, so if you read a line and you don't know what that word is, you can find out. So there's, there is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's, uh, it's also edited by Norman Davis, so I, I don't quite know how that works, but it, this is the second edition. If it's still in print, it'll probably be about the 16th edition by now. Edited by Norman Davis, but the text was edited by Tolkien and Gordon. So that that's, I guess, a... A version. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Pearl and Sir Orfeo is a published set of translations made by J.R.R. Tolkien of three classic Middle English tales, first released by George Allen and Unwin in 1975. The first of them from Arthurian legend, blah, blah, blah. So that's a version of the story. There's Tolkien's version of the story. But the Simon Armitage version is going to be the one that's closest to modern standard English. No, I don't think so. I think Tolkien, no? I think Tolkien made it turned it into modern English so that people understand it. And I think Tolkien's is a is a straightforward translation, if you like. What Simon Armitage has done has he's copied the form of the poem in a way that recreates what the poem is is like with the, with the same rhythms, the same alliterations, and the same format. So oh, I think okay. that uh, even though I haven't got it here, I think the translation by Tolkien would be understandable. It wouldn't be quite as poetic. I see. Um, I'm just I'm asking all these questions and making these points because I'm just wondering which version I should recommend to my listeners. And uh, obviously, there's the English, the style of English that 
that is in it, but also whether it's just a good read or not. Uh, Goodreads, the website goodreads.com, gave Sokoen and the Green Knight by Tolkien. Yeah. They gave it 3.97 out of 5, whereas... Oh, wait. <laughs> All right, the Simon Armitage version has got virtually the same score. Uh, 3.74. I, I think the Tolkien translation is, is fairly standard and most people would, would find it's fine. Okay. You can always get the uh, audiobook version, ladies and gentlemen, otherwise known as the Tolkien book. Oh, Thank you. no. Not a talking book, but a Tolkien book. That's a terrible pun. <laughs> Do you know that joke, Dad, which is that, um, what was it? Uh, <laughs> I had a dream last night that I'd written Lord of the Rings. My brother told me that I was Tolkien in my sleep. Oh, very good. I think we just pass on. <laughs> yeah, let's just move on. Let's crack on away from that. Well, anyway, th- that's brilliant, Dad. Thanks so much for sort of, uh, you know, telling us all about it and reading some sections from the book. Great. Great. Good. We don't need to add much more no, here. No, definitely that's not. Probably good. And uh, I know it's a little bit of obscure subject for Luke's English podcast, but I hope people have found it interesting. I think they will. Uh, we, as ever, listeners, we uh, look forward to reading your comments wherever you leave them. And uh, that's it. Well, I'll let you go now, Dad. Yep. Get back to normal life. Okay. All right. Stay cool. Yes, exactly. Literally, it's going to be hot. Same to you. Okay. Will do. All right, Dad. Thanks so much. All right. Have a nice day. Have a good weekend. So, how was that for you? Um, I wonder how you found that conversation. Did you manage to follow all of it? Did you understand what we were talking about? How was it for you? Now, you might be keen to hear more of the story and to hear more samples of the poem. And that's what I'd like to do now in this ending part. So I'm going to do a couple of readings for you now. I thought it would be useful for you to hear, a first of all, a brief version of the whole story, just to give you an overview and to make sure that you've understood the whole thing. You might be curious uh, just, just to hear the story from start to finish. I'll give you a brief summarised version of it. Then I'll read a few verses from the Simon Armitage version of this poem in order to give you a flavour of the poetry with its distinctive style wonderfully descriptive language and a particular rhythm which was originally used in the 14th century version as my dad described. So let me now give you a summary of the story. So this is a version of the story from a TED Ed video. TED, that's, you know, TED Talks, that uh, conference where people talk about interesting things. Uh, They have a website and a series of videos, TED.com, T-E-D, TED. So uh, there's a TED Ed video TED Ed is basically sort of like a series of ed- educational videos uh, by Ted. Who is this Ted anyway? What is Ted? A teddy bear? Just a, a teddy bear called Ted who just gives you all this information. It's that, It's yeah, it's that, that teddy bear from the movie Ted with um, Mark Wahlberg. No, it's not him. No. What you, uh, sorry, got distracted. I got distracted by stupidness. Anyway, TED Ed, it's just a series of uh, educational videos. So I found a summary of the story from a TED Ed video by Dan Quartler. 
So full credit for this version of the story, this kind of summary, goes to Dan Quartler. And there is an animated version of Dan's uh, story, uh, which you will find. I'll put it on the page for this episode. I've adapted this version slightly from Dan's script, but most of it, I'm basically reading out Dan's version of the story here. And this doesn't have the rhythmic style of the original poem or the very richly descriptive language, but it does tell the story quite briefly. And it's got some nice descriptive vocab in it as well. Thing is, I'm not going to explain all the words here. Okay, I might do that if I do a part two of this episode. If I do a sequel to this episode, I might go through this story and some of the verses from the poem in more detail and actually break down and explain the language. I'll see if I have time to do that. If I don't do it this week, then I'll try and do it um, like maybe in September or something. But anyway, I'm not going to explain all the words here, but you can find this script on the page for this episode on my website if you want to actually check the specifics here. So here we go. This is a summary of the story by Dan Quartler. Here we go. So it was Christmas time in Camelot and King Arthur was throwing a party. The entire court was invited, except for the evil sorceress, Morgan Le Fay, who was not invited. The food and drink flowed freely, but in the midst of all this revelry, the castle doors suddenly split open. A tall knight riding an emerald horse burst into the room, stunning the court into silence. He was green from head to toe, including his hair skin and clothes. Even his horse was green. Then, in a deep, bellowing voice, he proposed a game. The Green Knight declared that he would allow the bravest warrior present to attack him with his own axe. If they could strike him down, they would win his powerful weapon. However, the knight would be allowed to return that blow in one year and one day. Arthur and his knights were baffled. No man could survive such a strike. How would the Green Knight be able to return the blow in a year's time? The Green Knight began to mock their leader's hesitance. And Arthur stood up to defend his honour. But as soon as he gripped the axe, another person leapt up to take his place. It was Arthur's nephew, Sir Gawain who decided he could not let the king be drawn into such a macabre game. Keen to prove himself as a worthy hero, Sir Gawain took the weapon instead. The Green Knight knelt down to receive the blow from the axe, even moving his hair away to expose the naked green skin of his neck. With one swift strike, Sir Gawain beheaded the knight. But the moment his skull hit the ground, it began to laugh. The green knight bent down, collected his head and mounted his horse. As he rode off, his severed head reminded Gawain of their contract and told him to seek the green chapel one year and one day from that moment. In the months that followed, Gawain tried to forget this bizarre vision. But despite the strangeness of the knight's game, Sir Gawain was determined to act honourably 
and fulfill his promise. When the following winter approached, he set out, enduring foul weather and encounters with dangerous beasts in his quest to find the mysterious green chapel. Finally, on Christmas Eve, he saw a shimmering castle on the horizon. The castle's lord and lady were thrilled to help such an honourable guest and informed him that the green chapel was only a short ride away. They implored Gawain to rest at their home until his meeting with the green knight. Thrilled at this news, Gawain happily accepted their offer. However, in exchange for this hospitality, the Lord made a strange request. Over the next three days, he would go hunting, and every night he would share whatever he caught with Gawain. In return, Gawain must give him whatever he'd gained during his day at the castle. At first, Gawain was perplexed by these strange terms. But the Lord's meaning became quite clear the next day, when his wife tried to seduce Gawain. To rebuff the lady's advances without offending her honour, Gawain allowed one kiss, which he then passed on to her husband in exchange for a slain deer. The next day, Gawain allowed two kisses, which he gave to the Lord for a dead boar. But on the third day, the lady offered him more than just three kisses. She presented a magical sash that would protect Gawain from the Green Knight's blade. Gawain accepted immediately, but that evening, when the Lord returned, Gawain offered only three kisses and did not mention the enchanted gift which he had received. The next morning, Gawain rode out to the Green Chapel, a simple mound of earth, where the Green Knight was waiting and ominously sharpening his axe. With the sash's protection, Gawain approached stoically, determined to honour his agreement. He bowed his head for the deadly blow. He flinched twice, but then with a massive swing, the Green Knight cut Gawain's neck, but inflicted nothing more than a flesh wound. Once more, Gawain was bewildered. Why hadn't the sash protected him? And why hadn't the knight killed him? Bursting into laughter, the Green Knight revealed himself to be the castle's lord, and that he had been working with the sorceress Morgan Le Fay to test the honour and bravery of Arthur's knights. He was impressed with Gawain's behaviour, and he'd planned to spare his neck entirely until Gawain concealed the sash, and this is when the Green Knight chose to inflict the flesh wound upon him. Filled with shame, Gawain returned to Camelot, but to his surprise, his companions absolved him of blame and celebrated his valour. Struggling to understand this strange journey, it seemed to Gawain that perhaps the whole world was playing a game, with rules more wild and bewildering than any man could understand. Okay, so that's the story. It's a bit, it's a bit confusing and mysterious, potentially. Let me give you my version of it, right? So basically, King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table were these amazing chivalrous knights, knights who were experts in combat, 
and they also had a code of chivalry, a code of honour, which they followed very carefully. And honour was very important for them, like, you know, doing the right thing and uh, being morally strong. So they, anyway, they were celebrating uh, the Christmas period, the New Year period, having a big party. And in the middle of the party, this Green Knight suddenly arrived. The doors opened and the Green Knight was there on a horse, completely green from head to toe with a green horse. And everyone was stunned, like couldn't believe their eyes. He was super strong, super big, at least you know, a, a, a head taller than everyone else in the room. And the Green Knight proposed a challenge which you know now, uh, you've heard the challenge being described a few times. Basically, uh, the G Green Knight said, right, your bravest knight, I want to see who's the bravest person in this room. You can have a go at chopping off my head with this axe. And if you do it successfully, you can keep the axe. But in a year and a day, I have the right to return the blow to you. So I get the chance to try and chop your head off as well which is a bizarre game isn't it because you think well if someone manages to chop i suppose it's it's quite a frightening challenge because you think right i better kill the guy with one uh swing of this axe because if i don't kill him then he'll be able to do the same thing to me but it's it's quite weird it's quite a dark game it's very strange and mysterious the whole story is strange and mysterious um People have been studying this story for years, trying to understand what it really means. There's lots of symbolism, lots of different interpretations. So anyway, there's the challenge. You get to try and kill me with the axe with one shot. And then um, if, you, if you successfully do it, if you kill me, you can keep the axe. And in any case, in a year's time, I will be able to do the same thing to you. Uh, so Arthur was, a, was going to do it. Uh, he jumped up. And sort of said, right, come on then. But um, Gawain thought, no, this is my moment. This is my chance to prove myself. Because he was quite a young knight. And he had lots of things to prove. So he said, oh, this is this is my chance to prove myself. To be the, you know, the most hero uh, heroic and courageous of all the knights. So he stepped up. He took the axe. Chopped off the green knight's head. The head fell and rolled across the floor. Uh, but, in, but the green knight didn't die. In fact, the body... Uh, picked up the head and jumped back onto the horse. And um, as the Green Knight left, the head uh, spoke to Gawain again and said, don't forget, in a year's time, you're going to have to come and see me at the Green Chapel. Um, I'll trust that you can work out where it is. Come and find me at the Green Chapel to receive your, your blow from me. So Gawain probably kind of went, mm, gulp. Oh, oh, God. All right, then. And um, he was probably very scared, but um, for about a year, he wandered about it, worried about it. And then winter of the following year, he decided to set out to try and find the Green Chapel to receive this blow, probably a blow that will probably kill him. So he was probably very scared. Um, and he went out and there's a big adventure. He did battle with various beasts and things and very difficult weather. He almost froze to death. Uh, there's a scene in the poem that describes uh, his armour with icicles hanging off it, icicles hanging off his helmet and stuff. So he's really desperate in the very cold weather until eventually he finds this 
wonderful castle, very inviting looking castle. And he's delighted. It's, this is just before he's, you know, he's about to die from exhaustion and from um, exposure to the cold weather. But he sees this castle just in time. And the lord and lady of the castle invite him in. Um, and say, don't worry, you just rest here. Uh, the Green Chapel's very nearby. You can just like relax here, get your strength up before you go and meet your challenge, okay? And Gawain was obviously delighted. But then the lord of the castle, who's called Bertilac, said to Gawain, all right, so I'll tell you what, I'll propose you a game. So another game, this is a game inside a game. He said, oh, I'll propose you a game, right? Here's the Here's the game. I'm going to go out hunting every day, and everything I catch when I go hunting, I'll give to you. But anything you get while you're staying here at the castle, you have to give to me. Which is uh, kind of a weird challenge, a weird game. And uh, again, our, um, Gawain is a bit confused. But then that evening, he sort of understands, uh, because the... The, the Lord's wife, the, the lady of the castle, tries to seduce him. And this is quite a difficult situation because Gawain is trying to be honourable. The honourable thing to do would be to, you know, um, to say no. But he also needs to protect the honour of the lady if he sort of says, no, 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 I'm not interested or whatever. If, you know, if he refuses her, she would be uh, offended. So he doesn't want to offend her honour and all the rest of it. But also he can't, obviously, it's, it's not the right thing to do to uh, agree to, you know, sleep with this woman uh, who is the wife of the uh, the man whose castle he's staying in and all the rest of it. So he it must have been a bit of a struggle with her trying to get off with him <laughs> uh, in his bedroom every night. But so on the first night, he says, okay, okay, you can kiss me once. So she kisses him and then when Bertilac comes back from his hunting trip, he says, look, I found, I, we killed a deer, a deer. There you go. You can have the deer. Now you have to give me whatever you got. So, uh, so Gawain gives him one kiss. Now that's a bit weird because surely Bertilac would say, wait a minute, you kiss, right? Where'd you get this kiss from then? But apparently he doesn't. I mean, what's really going on is that Gawain is trapped in the middle of a weird game. And everyone seems to be in on the game except him. And also, what's the thing about Bertilac wants Gawain to kiss him? So there's what's this a sort of weird sexual thing going on here as well? And the second night, the lady comes back to see Gawain to try and seduce him again. And Gawain lets her kiss him two times, I think. So he return, he gives those kisses to Bertilac when he sees him next. And Bertilac has killed a, a wild boar, which is a sort of a wild pig. So he gives that to him. I guess Gawain's like, what am I going to do with all this meat? I don't know. I suppose he ate it to make him nice and strong to fight the green knight. And then the third night, the lady offered more than three kisses. She also um, offered him a sash. A sash is the sort of thing that you would wear, maybe wear around your your shoulder and around your waist or maybe like a belt that would go around your waist she said it's a magic sash it's going to protect you and of course Gawain believes her and uh, he's delighted to receive it because it means that he's going to be able to survive the attack by the green knight is what he's thinking so he keeps the sash and he chooses not to tell Bertilac so he says oh yeah yeah just got three kisses yeah just normal Totally normal, just three kisses. Uh, didn't didn't get anything else, no. 
as he sort of hides the the sash that he's wearing. Yeah, no, just just three kisses. Yeah, who from? Uh, it's not important. Never mind. Anyway, um, cool. We're good. Yeah, great. So then, after that, Gawain decides to go out to find the Green Chapel where he finds the Green Knight waiting for him, sharpening his axe. The Green Knight goes, okay then, right, are you ready? And Gawain kneels down to receive the blow from the Green Knight. The Green Knight swings his axe, but doesn't kill him. He just cuts his neck a little bit, gives him a little nick on the neck, like that. And Gawain's thinking, what's going on? And... The Green Knight then laughs and reveals himself, probably in like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. <laughs> Pulls off his mask, his green mask, and underneath, oh, it's it's you, it's Bertilak. So it was Bertilak the entire time playing a weird trick on Gawain. And Bertilak said, look, um, you were very honourable. Okay, you, you, yeah, I can confirm you are honourable. Well done. That's why I didn't chop your head off. But... Um, but you didn't tell me about that sash. And that's why I cut your, net, your neck a little bit. So basically, the whole thing was a, a test of honour, a test of um, moral fortitude. And Gawain is all confused and he feels ashamed because um, although he survived the experience, he wasn't completely honest. He feels ashamed because um, he kind of broke his... Um, chiv chivalric code by lying about the sash and he decides to wear the sash which is not magic it's just an ordinary sash he tries to he decides to wear it as a sort of a, sh a demonstration of his guilt but when he gets back to Camelot and sees the other knights they're all so impressed by him and his adventure that they all decide to celebrate him as a hero and they all choose to wear a uh, a similar sash as part of their um, costume and that's the end of the story. Hmm, okay, it's a mysterious story. And but one of the one of the things that's good about the poem, the original poem, or in fact the updated version as well, is the uh the way it's written, the rhythm, the rhyme and um and the meter of it. So I'm now going to read a few verses from the Simon Armitage version of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Now, what you don't get from that story summary I just gave you is the beautiful language. So watch out for some wonderfully descriptive vocabulary. Look out for the alliteration. That's the repetition of rhyming consonant sounds at the start of words. Okay. And the bob and wheel. So that's a, the rhythmic device that my dad talked about, which ends each verse with two syllables and then four lines afterwards. And it does have quite a nice effect, a rhythmic effect on the story. So there are some extracts from the Simon Armitage version of this um, available in the preview of the book on Amazon. You know, on Amazon, you get the little preview. You can look inside the book. Um, other bookshops are available, of course. So let me just read a couple of those initial pages. And the way the Armitage version of this poem is presented is that it gives you one page of the modernised version. And then on the next page, you have the equivalent original text. So you can compare them side by side. Now, I won't read any of the original text because the English is so old fashioned that I frankly wouldn't be able to pronounce it all. 
And before you fall out of your chair in disbelief that I don't know my own language, hardly anyone is able to pronounce sentences written in Middle English, okay? Only academic experts can do that, and a lot of them disagree about how Middle English should be pronounced. So that's not for us. Middle English is almost like another language, so there's really no need for me to read it to you. You can find some people online on YouTube reading the original text, and they, you know, it seems that some people pronounce it like this, other people pronounce it like that. So if you want to, you could search for readings of this in the original version, in Middle English, if you like. But the modern version of this poem, on the other hand, is much more appropriate for us. And Simon Armitage has done a fantastic job because, as my dad said, his version of the poem manages to keep the same alliteration, the same rhythm and the bob and wheel, that structural device where after a few lines, the verse comes to an end with a distinctive two-syllable break, that's the bob, and then four lines which follow it, and that's the wheel. You'll have a chance to listen to examples of that uh, again in a moment. So Simon Armitage, while managing to keep a lot of these literary and poetic devices from the original poem, uh, has updated it using modern English words. So this is still written in a literary and poetic style, but these are words that are still regularly used by people today, more or less. Listen carefully to the rhythm and sounds of this and you'll see what I mean. I'm now going to read the first few verses to you. I'm not sure how many verses I'll read because it's just lovely. I love reading this poem, but I'll, I'll read a few of the verses, maybe, the, maybe from the first part. Um, this is very rich in terms of language. Again, I'm not going to stop and explain everything here or analyse the text. I'm just going to read it to you so you can just hear it. I do plan to do another separate episode in which I read out some of these verses again and then, and then maybe break them down for language. Hopefully I will be able to make a video version of that too. Perhaps it will be the next episode. We will see. But if not, I will do my best to get it done at a later date. But now, for your listening pleasure, have a listen to this. Extracts from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight by Simon Armitage. And here we go. All right, so this is from Fit One. Once the siege and assault of Troy had ceased, with the city a smoke heap of cinders and ash, the traitor who contrived such betrayal there was tried for his treachery, the truest on earth. And Aeneas it was, with his noble warriors, went conquering abroad, laying claim to the crowns of the wealthiest kingdoms in the western world. Mighty Romulus quickly careered towards Rome, and conceived a city in magnificent style, which from then until now has been known by his name. Titius constructed townships in Tuscany, and Langobard did likewise, building homes in Lombardy, and further afield, over the Sea of France, on Britain's broad hilltops, Felix Brutus made his stand. And wonder, dread, and war have lingered in that land, where loss and love in turn have held the upper hand. After Britain was built by this founding father, a bold race bred there, battle-happy men, causing trouble and torment in turbulent times, and through history more strangeness has happened here than anywhere else I know of on earth. But most regal of rulers in the royal line 
was Arthur, who I heard is honoured above all. And the inspiring story I intend to spin has moved the hearts and minds of many. An awesome episode in the legends of Arthur. So listen a while to my tale, if you will, and I'll tell it as it's told in the town where it trips from the tongue. And as it has been inked in stories bold and strong, through letters which, once linked, have lasted loud and long. It was Christmas at Camelot, King Arthur's court, where the great and the good of the land had gathered, all the righteous lords of the ranks of the round table, quite properly carousing and revelling in pleasure. Time after time, in tournaments of joust, they had lunged at each other with levelled lances, then returned to the castle to carry on their carolling, for the feasting lasted a full fortnight and one day, with more food and drink than a fellow could dream of. The hubbub of their humour was heavenly to hear, pleasant dialogue by day and dancing after dusk. So the house and its hall were lit with happiness, and lords and ladies were luminous with joy. Such a coming together of the gracious and the glad, the most chivalrous and courteous knights known to Christendom, the most wonderful women to have walked in this world, the handsomest king to be crowned at court. Fine folk with their futures before them, there in that hall. Their highly honoured king was happiest of all. No nobler knights had come within a castle's wall. With New Year so young, it still yawned and stretched. Helpings were doubled on the dais that day, and as king and company were coming to the hall, the choir in the chapel fell suddenly quiet. Then a chorus erupted from the courtiers and clerks. Noel, they cheered. Then Noel, Noel. New Year gifts, the knights cried next, as they pressed forwards to offer their presents, teasing with frivolous favours and forfeits, till those ladies who lost couldn't help but laugh, and the undefeated were far from forlorn. Their merrymaking rolled on in this manner until mealtime, when, washed and worthy, they went to the table, and were seated in order of honour, as was apt, with Guinevere in their gathering, gloriously framed, at her place on the platform, pricelessly curtained, by silk to each side, and canopied across, with French weave and fine tapestry from the far east, studded with stones and stunning gems, pearls beyond pocket, pearls beyond purchase or price. But not one stone outshone the quartz of the Queen's eyes. With hand on heart, no one could argue otherwise. But Arthur would not eat until all were served. He brimmed with ebullience, being almost boyish in his love of life. And what he liked the least was to sit still watching the seasons slip by. His blood was busy and he buzzed with thoughts, and the matter which played on his mind at that moment was his pledge to take no portion from his plate on such a special day until a story was told. Some far-fetched yarn or outrageous fable, the tallest of tales, yet one ringing with truth, like the action-packed epics of men-at-arms, 
or till some chancer had challenged his chosen knight, dared him with a lance to lay life on the line, to stare death face to face and accept defeat, should fortune or fate smile more favourably on his foe. Within Camelot's castle this was the custom, and at feasts and festivals when the fellowship would meet, with features proud and fine, he stood there tall and straight, a king at Christmas time, amid great merriment. And still he stands there just being himself, chatting away charmingly, exchanging views. Good Sir Gawain is seated by Guinevere, and at Arthur's other side sits Agravian, the hard hand, both nephews of the king and notable knights. At the head sat Bishop Baldwin as Arthur's guest of honour, with Ewain, son of Urien, to eat beside him. And soon as the nobles had sampled the spread, the stalwarts on the benches to both sides were served. The first course comes in to the fanfare and clamour of blasting trumpets hung with trembling banners, then pounding double drums and dinning pipes, weird sounds and wails of such warbled wildness that to hear and feel them made the heart float free. Flavoursome delicacies of flesh were fetched in, and the freshest of foods, so many in fact, there was scarcely space to present the stews or to set the soups in the silver bowls on the cloth. Each guest received his share of bread or meat or broth, a dozen plates per pair, plus beer or wine or both. Now on the subject of supper I'll say no more, as it's obvious to everyone that no one went without, because another sound, a new sound, suddenly drew near which might signal the king to sample his supper. For barely had the horns finished blowing their breath, and with starters just spooned to the seated guests, a fearful form appeared, framed in the door. A mountain of a man, immeasurably high, a hulk of a human from head to hips. So long and thick in his loins and his limbs, I should genuinely judge him to be half-giant or a most massive man, the mightiest of mortals, but handsome, too, like any horseman worth his horse. For despite the bulk and brawn of his body, his stomach and waist were slender and sleek. In fact, in all features, he was finely formed, it seemed. Amazement seized their minds. No soul had ever seen a knight of such kind, entirely emerald green." So that's where I'm going to stop. But that was a reading from Simon Armitage's modernised version of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And that's where we're going to end here. But I will ask you, as usual, to leave your comments uh, in the comments section for this episode. What did you think of this episode? What did you make of the story? Um, I'm curious to know your thoughts in general. Did you understand it? Uh, did you like the descriptions? Did you notice the alliteration? in those, in those uh, lines there. Uh, things like, on the subject of supper, I'll say no more. S -s -s. It's obvious to everyone that no one went without. No one went without. Because another sound, a new sound suddenly drew near. Lots of S sounds, which might signal the king to sample his supper. Lots of S, -s, -s sounds. Uh, barely had the horns finished blowing their breath. Lots of buh sounds. Uh, 
a mountain of a man immeasurably high, lots of M sounds. So that's the alliteration. And then the, the bob and wheel is this bit. Um, in fact, in all features, he was finely formed. It seemed. So it seemed, that's the bob, those the sort of two syllables, it seemed. And then the lines afterwards are the wheel. Amazement seized their minds. No soul had ever seen a knight of such a kind, entirely emerald green. That's quite an effective storytelling technique that you get these rhyming or alliterative lines and then this kind of ending uh, to each uh, each uh, stanza like that. It um, certainly keeps the interest up. So anyway, there you go. Thanks for listening to this episode, everyone. And thank you for listening all the way to the end. And thank you for supporting Luke's English Podcast, if that's what you do, if you're a premium subscriber or if you've sent me a donation. That does help to keep the podcast alive. And that's very good of you. That's, that's the system. You know, those, those people who can afford to pay can pay, and that allows the podcast to continue. Um, and it's, it's able to stay free you know, the free episodes will always be free. And those people who can afford to pay and support the podcast in some way, you allow the podcast to continue for everyone. And um, I get paid for my time and it means I'm actually able to do this. So that's how the system works. And so your support is greatly, greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for listening. I will speak to you again in the next part. Okay, but for now, it's just time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.